Shannon Miedema is director of the Environment and Climate Change team with the Halifax Regional Municipality and one of the chief architects of the city's climate plan, the subtitle of which is, and I love this, Acting on Climate Together. In this conversation, she defines what that means in terms of what is increasingly referred to as a just transition, or a transition that, as she says, isn't interested in leaving anyone behind. One that rejects the idea that we can simply embrace mitigation of climate change or adaptation to climate change without putting equity first. This means devising material solutions with and for the disadvantaged communities in our city, racialized and underserved communities, the poor, the uniquely vulnerable. She wants us on this Earth Day 2022 to recognize the unprecedented momentum the climate justice movement now has in a context where we no longer talk about just climate change or a climate crisis, but a climate emergency and even a coming climate catastrophe. What we need are plans like the one that Regional Council just adopted in HRM. Halifact acts on the knowledge that the climate emergency is going to take everyone. It's going to require an army of people capable of deepening and increasing engagement across the board. Shannon talks about the risk that was inherent in even bringing their plan and projections to council originally. The choice was made to initiate the plan despite the knowledge that, as she says, the COVID-19 pandemic had and has municipalities very worried about their financial futures. But the future is, of course, what's at stake in climate change, both immediate and long-term. So they moved forward, pushing seven core areas of actionable, conceivable counteraction mitigation, adaptation. And the goal is to inspire confidence that there are so many things that can be done against the dangerous attachment to business as usual and a deadly conviction that it's already too late. One of the big themes of our conversation is this idea that in spite of the globe-spanning scale of the climate emergency and the desperate need for a still unrealized form of multi-level climate governance, cities are a crucial space where mobilization can materially happen especially in Canada. Cities need to be consulted, Shannon tells us, because large-scale plans to act against climate catastrophe, which don't attend to cities, will not have policies and funding programs that actually meet the needs of people in cities. Cities are important as well because places like Halifax with a high GDP and a lamentably very dirty grid, where the majority of our power comes from coal, can and should do more to decarbonize. Another major theme is this unresolved problem of communication. How do we craft messages and create engagement that causes people to care and feel capable of action rather than encouraging them to turn away or tune out because it's too late or because they're too racked with doubt? What does it mean to inspire stakeholders at every level to not just understand, but commit to the preservation of the local environment out of love for the land and a knowledge that we can't go on the way we're going. It's, you know, it's Earth Day 2022. It's obviously an incredibly dire time to be celebrating the kind of, you know, splendid, vast, incredible beauty uh, and life-giving force of the Earth. But still, you know, on this Earth Day, I guess I wanted to start by asking you about your specific evolution as an active 
I'm going to call it climate defender, you know, um, it, we understand like these are not individual el- evolutions. They happen, I think, in tandem with the rest of society, with with our educators, with pe- with commu- other communicators. But, you know, I guess I'm thinking about like how, you know, this iconic climate defender, Greta Thunberg, talks about her own uh, education as a gateway and a source of inspiration but she says a kind of limited one, you know, at a certain point she needed to educate herself in order to grasp how desperate the situation really was. What were the most important moments of inspiration or education in your own development as part of the climate justice movement or as a climate expert? Um, I'd say that uh, I had some formative moments as a child growing up. I grew up in Ottawa and I had the good fortune of having a family cottage about an hour southwest of Ottawa on Crosby Lake. And I spent all of my free time um, in the forest and in the lake there. Um, We actually built the cottage. My parents purchased the land when I was born and it was kind of just the the thing that we worked on and loved um, my entire upbringing. And um, my my mom didn't go back to work until um, my youngest sibling uh, was in school. So we would spend all our summers there, weekends, um, holidays, etc. And um, so I always had a really strong love of nature. And um, I would react really strongly if I thought it was being treated uh, with disrespect. And uh, the, the high school that I went to, West Carlton Secondary School uh, in Dunrobin, which is kind of in the country, uh, the country kind of part of Ottawa, um, had a really strong environmental education program. They had teachers that were champions of nature and of getting outdoors and backcountry camping and just learning to really foster love and appreciation of nature. Um, We had this whole, we called it the Back 40, Mm. and it was this whole large sector of land full of wetlands and forest and boardwalks, and we would do interpretive education as part of our programming there. And we had an environmental club um, that I had joined and an outdoor club. We had things like outdoor education outdoor gym as an option instead of regular gym class where we would go backcountry canoeing in Algonquin Park and we would go on multi-day bike trips and we would go outdoor rock climbing in Gatineau and caving and for me that was just um it was a done deal I was like okay I need to I was taking you know biology classes geography social studies uh, lots of sciences and I was like well I just I need to work in environment like that's there was no question that that's what I wanted to do Um, And so, you know, I just kind of followed a path of going to university and studying environmental earth system science and environmental studies, and uh, then did a master's program at Dalhousie, which brought me to Halifax um, Mm -hmm. Environmental Studies. And I did a one-year Bachelor of Journalism at King's because I really got passionate. You know, you kind of dig into the science and then you try and figure out your niche of like, well, do I want to work in a lab or do I want to be outside? Or like, what is the thing that I think I should be um, focusing my time and energy on? And for me, it was really this this, um, tension of people not understanding and not having good Um, media communications around nature and science and climate change and um, just like not being able to accept that people wouldn't care if they understood what was actually Mm -hmm. going on. And so uh, when I took the, it was like an eight month 
Bachelor of Journalism uh, program, everything I did was focused on how to better communicate climate change and science and environment uh, to the general public. Wow, um, that's amazing. I mean, it sounds like not only do you kind of come by it honestly, as they say, but you're just like steeped in a really varied kind of skill set, um, the sciences and the communication side. I, I'm, you know, certainly more focused on kind of communication. So I have a lot of questions about that. But I just wanted to like, underscore this, this thing that you, you sort of gestured to of like, land, love of the land relating to the land being like part of pedagogy, seems like, you know, that is not incorporated enough, like across the board. And it sounds like you had uh, direct access to that. And and it kind of undid this nature deficit that people sometimes talk about, um, where there is this disconnection that um, is costly in a lot of ways. But I wanted to, I guess, dig into some of the I think sometimes disjointed language that we use to try and restore that thing of, of like a relationship of responsibility to the land. Um, you, you gave this presentation to the committee of the whole in January, where you provided like a visual uh, a reminder of how little time we have to prevent ourselves from burning through our, our carbon budget as it's called. Um, so it, it had been 150 weeks since regional council declared a climate emergency at that point, And that left us on track to have only 264 weeks until we surpass our carbon budget. Um, that notion, I think, of a carbon budget is a tricky one for, for me personally to understand. Like it has been hard for me to kind of wrap my head around. It's simple enough in some ways, but like it's an idea I first encountered in Naomi Klein's This Changes Everything, the documentary version of that book actually uses images similarly to try and like convey what is going on with that idea. And I think like my own resistance to it comes from a general resistance to the language of economics. Like mm -hmm. it just doesn't resonate in some ways, but the carbon budget is not, you know, it implicates the financial side of the social world, but it's actually not about money. It's about the discrepancy between the fossil fuels we have to burn and the fossil fuels that the atmosphere and the earth will let us burn, as it were, without itself getting poisoned and hitting back with severe climate impacts. Is that like, do I have it? Is that a fair description? Or could you simplify it further? You know, why does the carbon budget as an idea mean that time is not on our side, as you've put it? Right. That's a really good question. And we grapple with <laughs> communicating climate change uh, every day here. And we're really trying to build our capacity and support um, with our communications team and with others and internally to try and do a better job because you're absolutely right. It's very confusing. It's not accessible to everybody. Um, and there's this tension between needing to be technically accurate, particularly in, uh, with some stakeholders and audiences, and then needing to actually be understandable and relatable. And then mm -hmm. also trying to not make people so overwhelmed and depressed that they check out and stop engaging, right? Mm -hmm. um, so we think of, I spend a lot of time thinking about this. Um, you, you have it right. The, the carbon budget, like one of the ways I try to explain it to council and to, um, to other people is the way ours was defined was the way that C40 uh, recommends doing it, which is um, a way for cities to figure out really what their ethical responsibilities are around 
managing their emissions over time. So yeah. if you're a high GDP city, which Halifax is, and if you have a high in a high emissions, uh, a kind of a dirty grid, which Nova Scotia does, um, then you're in the best position to more quickly mobilize to drive your emissions down in the short term is the idea. And then for other cities in different combinations of those things, whether they're low GDP, high GDP, low emitting, high emitting, um, can take a slightly, you know, if they're low GDP, regardless of their emissions, they can take a slower uh, kind of curve down. Um, but the idea is that they need support, outside support to be able to mobilize. They're not going to be able to do it on their own. Mm -hmm. So it's a tough decision to decide to mobilize and to fund what's necessary to do climate action, but it's not an impossible decision for a city like Halifax. And, you know, we've known about the, the phenomenon of climate change and warming for literally more than three decades. Um, and if we were able to quickly come together and do something about it, we would have done it by now. It's really complicated. There's a lot at stake. It's political. It's there's, you know, there's the perception of winners and losers. And so we I try and balance the way I communicate climate to my audience. So we need to talk about the economics of it. We need to talk about the business of it, the industry, the technology, the the hard energy utility side, or we're not going to have the people in the room that we need to collectively act on climate together, which is really what the Halifax Climate Plan is saying. It's saying, you know, the city's taking a leadership role. We're And, you know, council's shown its commitment to actually do what we can and support and push all of our stakeholders and the public to come with us on this journey of trying to actually ad meaningfully address climate change with the recognition, which is this is what's hard for a lot of people is that, you know, we can we can stay within our carbon budget. It's possible. It doesn't need a silver bullet. It doesn't need new technology. It doesn't mean that other cities in Canada and elsewhere are going to stay within their carbon budget. But if nobody tries to stay within their carbon budget, we are 100% going to exceed what the international scientists are telling us about what we need to limit to to avoid some really seriously catastrophic climate events. Yeah, I think, I mean, you articulate it really convincingly, you know, for me. And and one of the things I wanted to sort of jump off of is this, this problem of um, like comparing ourselves to other spaces and how that jurisdictional question can kind of get in the way of mobilization. Like, um, you know, so you can hit people with the, the, the known knowns, the facts, like the fact that, you know, as the Halifax plan points out, projections indicate Halifax will experience higher temperatures, more heat waves, more rain and snow, and an increasing number of more severe storms, flooding events, and wildfires, which will mean damage to physical infrastructure, reduce water quality and quantity, stresses on agriculture and food systems, threats to biodiversity, and then people get maybe overwhelmed. Um, but those are necessary points to communicate. The other part of it that you, you know, that you underline is this, this issue of the complicated and political nature of the uh, the task of mobilizing. You know, there's an article on the kind of quality of municipal climate change plans in Canada that talks about how, in fact, like only one province, Nova Scotia, has mandated municipalities to create climate change plans. They talk about how, quote, some jurisdictions require policies related to climate change to be included 
in municipal of official plans, but there doesn't seem to be enough of a push to make these plans mandatory. Um, and I wondered if you could speak to how like the legislative landscape has has maybe changed since they you know they released that study in 2019. Um, is that still the case that provinces aren't really demanding this sort of long-term planning? And do you see Halifax as a potential like leader in that in that space? Um, I'm a member of uh, a network of kind of environmental managers of all of almost all of the large and leading cities in Canada, and it's called CUSP, the Canadian Urban Sustainability Practitioners Group, and I'm the co-chair of that. And um, what I can tell you is that every city has had climate plans for many, many years. Um, they're at different stages of needing to be renewed or recently renewed. They have different targets. Um, cities have been creating and acting on climate through planning and policies and strategies for a very, very long time, uh, even before we kind of were collectively raised to the level of crisis. Um, and since our plan was released, uh, which is our updated plan, we had plans a long time before that, uh, in June of 2020, I've had um, some smaller cities and some cusp and some non-cusp cities reach out um, to try and understand how we did it, kind of what the costs were, <clears throat> what, what our lessons were, and because they were going to go down the same path of trying to achieve you know, the internationally declared target of net zero by 2050 and try and really drive down quickly by 2030. Um, I can't speak to each individual province, but I do think that Nova Scotia showed some some good leadership when they did require a climate plan component. Um, it was it was a bit of a stick approach. You know, you can always have carrots and sticks. It was a stick approach um, to getting uh, the gas tax funding that cities um, and municipalities rely on quite critically. And so we had originally had to have an, an ICIP, um, which is a Integrated Community Sustainability Plan or ICSP. Anyway, mm -hmm. basically your regional planning strategy, um, if it had enough sustainability components uh to kind of check all the boxes, you would call it your sustainability plan and you would be able to access those funds. And then Nova Scotia took it a step further and said you needed specific climate planning. Right. And I mean, like a big part of it clearly is that, you know, municipalities are like maybe best positioned to implement these policies, right? Like, uh, in especially in Canada, where we do have these jurisdictional divides in some ways, like You've talked about how cities can control their greenhouse gas emissions. They have planning tools that can improve resilience. The Halifax plan talks about this in terms of leverage, that the key to local government, and I'm quoting the plan, uh, the key to local government success in lowering community emissions is in its ability to leverage its control and influence over decisions, investments, and behaviors in the community that determine emissions levels. Um, and, you know, the, the plan says municipalities are, in fact, on the front line of climate action. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think this jurisdictional question is so important. And it sounds like one of the ways that you get around the limits that jurisdiction kind of places on cities where the legislative landscape kind of isolates us and prevents broad based planning is through like coordinating with other environment managers in different municipalities. Do you think that sort of communication can potentially overcome these jurisdictional boundaries and lead to more of that kind of broad-based planning? It sounds like your you're cusp is on the cusp of doing that, right? <laughs> That's a really good question. We're actually spending a lot of time 
thinking and advocating for multi-level climate governance, which is mm. jargon word, but basically um, everybody recognizes that cities are on the front line, that we mm -hmm. collectively in Canada uh, own and control 60% of infrastructure, but we don't have an equivalent 60% of, of funding and revenue sources to be able to adequately manage that infrastructure. Um, and we are constructs of provincial government. And right. so we are bound by the rules um, that they set for us. And in Nova Scotia, uh, there's the Municipal Governance Act, which governs every municipality in the province except for Halifax. Halifax has its own separate piece of legislation called the Halifax Charter. And um, we we 100 percent need like very close collaboration with the provincial government to be able to mobilize on a lot of our climate plan. Right now, our hands are largely tied in some respects without some legislation authority and some policy change. And, um, and the same goes for the federal government. And, you know, one great body in Canada is the Federation of Canadian Municipalities. They're a really strong voice uh, to the federal government advocating for municipalities and what they need and what they do. And um, things like the Green Municipal Fund have been really, really impactful all across Canada for, for a lot for a long time. And the recent federal budget actually um, further increases funding to the Green Municipal Fund. Um, COP26 happened recently and our mayor actually went uh, there with the, the head of FCM and another FCM staff. And um, the mayor went because he's the chair of the Big City Mayor's Caucus. Um, it had been uh, Mayor Iveson from Edmonton in for the last number of years, and now Mayor Savage has taken over. And so he went actually representing all of the big city, all of the big cities of Canada and, and advocating for the role of cities and the need for cities to really be at the table when we make these big decisions around policy and programs and funding for climate action. Because mm -hmm. if if cities aren't not just consulted, but at the table from the beginning, then, then the policies and the funding programs that get established don't actually meet the needs of the cities. And right. that's been a bit of a tension for a long time where we really need more open and, and constant communication kind of between municipalities and the federal government, right? But that, that that's not what typically happens. It's typically the federal government and the provincial government speaking, then the provincial governments go and speak to their municipalities. But we don't really have time yeah. for slow up and down communication. So one of the things that was embedded in the charter that came out of COP was um, a line that said uh, an intention about multi-level climate governance. And this afternoon, we actually have a really exciting virtual meeting um, that's hosted by the Center for Dialogue out of uh, Simon Fraser University, Shauna Sylvester. And um, we had had a couple of these major sessions uh, that included people like the Climate Change Ambassador for Canada, when that was a position, uh, the head of FCM, lots of people from the federal government, uh, all levels of government, some mayors, uh, some members of CUSP and, and, and things like that. And uh, we tried to really help mobilize, you know, the, the voice of cities um, leading up to COP. And now we're kind of having a debrief on how that went and and what the new um, federal emissions reduction plan and budget means for, for cities and for multi-level climate governance. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I see it as like so kind of energizing in a way, like to think about cities as part of a network, you know, and especially, I mean, th- to think about some uh, a city like Edmonton, right, in a, in a province like Alberta, for Edmonton to declare a climate emergency um, early on and with this level of like mass mobilization is inspiring because Alberta, we know, is problematic in terms of climate politics in Canada. Um, you know, so I don't know. It's it's interesting to think about this. And and I wondered if we could maybe um, get a little bit more specific about uh, municipal plans in Canada. You know, this the study that I mentioned talks about how typically these plans prioritize mitigation over adaptation. Um, and a lot of that actually, they say, stems from the origin of these plans in uh, the Partners for Climate Protection or PCP program, uh, which was introduced in 1994 and administered through the Federation of Canadian Municipalities. Um, They say like that original program was important, but it kind of limited the scope of plans uh, that cities were developing by focusing mainly on, or even exclusively on mitigation. Um, And, you know, so we just don't see enough of a two-pronged approach. And I think one of the reasons that Mayor uh, Savage kept saying that this plan, Halifax is maybe the best in Canada is that it clearly balances mitigation and adaptation. Could you break down some of the successes and challenges maybe that Halifax has had, but, you know, with distinguishing between mitigation and adaptation and the economics of each of these different sorts of approaches to protecting against like a future of escalating climate impacts. It's like clearly about how adaptation and mitigation are two different, but connected approaches that can, you know, preserve resources, save money, protect lives in the long term. Um, you know, that how did that kind of how did that get formed uh, in terms of Halifax two-pronged approach? Yeah, they're really two sides of the same coin. And before Halifax, we had some separate climate plans and we didn't have a specific adaptation plan at all. And mm. there's been a trend in the climate world where we really only were focusing on mitigation for a long time. Um, we weren't necessarily aware of what was coming or the level of impact, the frequency of impact, the cost of impact. And maybe naively as humans can be thought, okay, well, we'll, we'll do mitigation and then it'll all be fine. Um, and then there was this whole, oh, it's not fine. We're not doing it fast enough. Bad things are happening. Insurance is freaking out, you know, all these floods and fires, and <clears throat> this is actually getting really serious. Um, we better start talking about, you know, preparing for these impacts, adapting, building our resilience to try and, uh, save lives, prevent loss, all those things. Um, and, I'd say even now, there's still more of um, an understanding and a focus by a lot of people on the mitigation side. The adaptation side is basically newer, and it's Mm -hmm. harder to show metrics for. It's harder to quantify a lot of the work in adaptation. It's a lot about capacity building. Um, There's a lot of pieces that are more qualitative. And there hasn't been a a lot of long-term studies of, you know, if you take a giant, really expensive infrastructure project and you're actually actually trying to account for climate and build resiliency in, it's not easy to be able to um, assess whether your project worked if you're kind of waiting for a major hurricane or something to show Mm -hmm. up to let you know whether it worked or not. Right. So, so they're, they're kind of two different worlds in a sense, when it comes to like the science and the accounting, um, the, the metrics, key performance indicators, all that kind of stuff. But 
we actually had a student do some work for us on the pros and cons of of maybe putting them together because there at the time a few mm-hmm. years ago there really weren't a lot of plans that were combined and i i kind of thought based on my experience internally that people who don't you know live and breathe the plans weren't really aware of the differences even between the two plans we had we kind of had a corporate one and then a community energy one and i didn't like that there were two and they needed separate tracking like it was already a little messy and it didn't even have the adaptation in it and they made a really strong case for for merging them. And I've really liked it because it's a way to engage people, regardless of the piece of climate that they may or may not be interested in. So it's easy to engage people that are in the energy sector that are already um, educated in climate on on both sides, really, but particularly the mitigation side, but it's a lot easier to um, start a conversation with someone in the public. If you talk about protection of their home and their families and their assets and their Mm -hmm. communities, right? That's what really, because at the end of the day, that's what matters. That's what we care about. We want to be happy and healthy and, and we want our families to be happy and healthy and we want to thrive in the, in the community that we live in. And so when we were going out to do public engagement and because it was pre COVID while we were developing the plan, uh, just when we were finalizing it, it was like three months into COVID when we actually took it to council. So we we did get to the benefit of going out into the public for a lot of it. And that was really um, where we would get people to come in and chat with us was when we were talking about more the adaptation and community resilient mm-hmm. side of things. Yeah. And, and that kind of leads nicely into, you know, this question that I had around public engagement, um, you know, one of the things that uh, seems to be like is still in development uh, is this this you know the strategies for real public engagement. It sounds like you've had to work through multiple kind of you know iterations of of you know plans that have you know tactics in place as it were for like engaging different publics, different worldviews, different value systems, different communities, and you know so. I think Halifax is really unique in a lot of ways for, for, you know, prioritizing the level of engagement that you do, like you're clearly heavily invested in it. And the community engagement report, for example, bears this out, right? You talk about how you conducted five large workshops, over 35 pop-up sessions, your online presence through Shape Your City saw more than 2,800 visitors, 1,300 survey respondents. And you, you know, you were also super active on social media. Um, And, and so, and another thing the community engagement report, report mentions is that, quote, while many understand the impacts and actions needed to address climate change, continuing to address knowledge gaps across communities, sectors, and governments is critical. Um, so like focusing on engagement seems to kind of move us away from a narrow focus on what I'll just call PR as this thing that's about, you know, advertising ideas and 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 just like promoting uh, maybe scientific facts, you know, trying to just hit people with facts to hopefully change behavior. Do you think we need to start basically respecting the public's capacity to perceive and take seriously the actual direct impact of these crises? You know, how do you think public engagement has, has shaped the project? And to what extent is it necessary to still like worry about informing and educating the public 
Mm-hmm. <clears throat> That's a really good question. Um, you you very likely know that council just approved our budget for 22-23 last week and uh, increased property taxes by 4.6%. And mm-hmm. three of that percent is to follow through on their commitment to health act to the climate plan and that was you know politically that's a very difficult decision to make um and a lot of the conversations that came up when they were debating this uh multiple times at budget committee was um that they were struggling that they wanted to make sure they had you know largely the support of their constituents and if their constituents didn't understand what Halifax was, that we even had a climate plan, what the 3% was for, why it mattered to them as individuals and communities, then they weren't going to have that support. And I think that while we have done some good things around trying to communicate the climate plan and what it is and why it's important, there's a lot more that we could that we need to do. And we're working on trying to build our capacity to do that. When this plan went forward, there was only a handful of us in our in our team and only one climate specialist. Um, and so we, we've grown quite quickly, even in the last year, because council's committed to resourcing us so that we can actually implement this very ambitious plan. It's a lot of work um, and it, it needs it needs a lot of people. Our consultant said it literally needs an army of people. And I know that's kind of a war term, but um, people are starting to talk about responding to the climate crisis like we respond to war or like we responded mm-hmm. to COVID to actually mobilize like it's a true emergency. And there's a really good book that you may have read called The Good War by Seth Klein mm-hmm. um, that focuses just on this. And now there's a group called the Climate Emergency Unit that is going around and actually presented to our council, to our Environment Standing Committee about um it's one thing to declare a climate crisis. It's another to declare an emergency, and these are two very different things. Um, but I think, I think uh, you know, the engagement we did was better than we had ever done. It wasn't perfect, and it definitely can be better. And it was just the start of the engagement. It really, you know, uh, a lot of communities get engaged, and they never know what happened with with their input and what you know, what transpired. And we've just um, hired some people to to start actually getting back into community, hopefully soon. I know COVID's kind of like really put a pause on, mm-hmm. on really, you know, kind of productive community engagement. But um, we just hired a climate engagement specialist and she is really well connected with lots of different communities and what we would maybe consider vulnerable populations and communities that haven't always been at the table as part of the climate conversation. And so we have big plans to actually um, deepen and increase our our engagement. And it's not just to engage, it's really to actually figure out what... um, the, com- the climate risks are in communities and what we can do to minimize those risks and to build their capacity to really adapt and um, to really be okay in emergency situations. And so our plan, we always said, had a lens of <clears throat> equity and inclusion. We wanted everyone inside our tent for our consultation. And we have this large stakeholder network Um I think there's over 400 email addresses on it, um, and we meet quarterly virtually. And that's not so much public. That's representatives of lots of organizations and communities and levels of government and academics and things like that. But but we, we created that network to develop the plan in the first place, and then we kept it going because we actually need them to implement on the plan with us, right? We, it's not yeah. the city controls about 2% of emissions uh, formally. 
the other 98 are by others. So we, we have some levers and tools we can and incentives we can put in place, but we really need everyone to, to work on it together. So, so we've been really focused on the stakeholder network through COVID because it's, you know, the major partners and it's easy enough to meet virtually, but we really need to get back to some more public work. And I mean, like I've talked about this on, on other episodes of the podcast, but so much of climate communication is seemingly about trying to articulate a positive vision without um, maybe subscribing too kind of nebulously to the trope of hope. You know, that, that necess- that's a tricky thing. But it is about trying to articulate what we have to gain, not just in terms of mitigation, but like adapting more transformatively to a less fossil-driven way of life. So the plan talks about how, quote, Halifax covers a large geographic area, and as a result, communities and citizens are heavily reliant on public and private transportation for daily life. And so switching to electric vehicles for private, public, and commercial transportation is going to reduce fuel costs, improve air quality, and reduce maintenance requirements. Um, Those are like really tangible things. But then some of the actions articulated in the plan are even, to me, kind of utopian. Like there's this passage where you write neighborhoods that invest in connections, capacity building and resources on a sustained basis are better able to withstand crises and address many of the chronic socioeconomic stresses that increase climate vulnerability. This this idea that, you know, communities are the basis for building capacity and connections. That's a beautiful vision. And it's about trying to, I think, explain the inherent validity in some ways of like equity, again, something of like a slippery concept. Mm-hmm. Um, but like Halifax is really good at as, uh, clearly expressing that, like in terms of the unequal distribution of wealth and recognizing, as you say, like the uneven consequences of climate change on vulnerable populations, people in poverty. Um, is this sort of Halifax vision for a just transition? Like that to me is a term that the public hears more and more the notion of a just transition. I think that's important, Mm -hmm. but I want it to be like more than a buzzword. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. Could you give your definition of like what a just transition means? Yeah, we, for me, we, we talk a lot about a just transition. So it's about transitioning to a low carbon economy that is well adapted to current and future climate impacts, leaving no one behind. So to me, that means reframing um, how we think with every single decision. And so in my role at the city, it's looking at every decision that we're making in terms of spending, projects, policy development, programs, and really putting equity first. And that is not, you know, traditional practice in government work. Mm. And it's actually been going really well. Um, we've we've just started, we've just, we're just trying, and I'm sure it's not perfect, but for example, um, we have a climate change capital account uh, that I, I got a couple of years ago. We didn't, have, we didn't have an account like this ever before, but it was really, we were finding, you know, these funding opportunities would come down from the province or the feds, and there'd be really little time to put something in, and you have to have these matching funds. And if you don't have the matching funds identified anywhere, you kind of can't progress. And so we, we didn't want to miss out on these opportunities for climate funding. And then there were a lot of projects happening in the city where if they only had a little bit more money, they could make them climate aligned. So we got this account with the idea that we were basically going to give it out 
to people uh, in different departments doing projects to make them more climate aligned. And that account has um, been doing that, but we've been doing it with an equity lens. So um, part of what our emergency management team that we work really closely with uh, hears in in vulnerable communities during power outages is the real the real risk and damage when food is lost and food security mm-hmm. issues. And so we actually did some uh, consultation on climate risks in communities as part of de- developing the plan, and communities themselves came up with the uh, with the notion of like, what if you had like a giant mobile fridge, and we could put our food in it uh, until the power is restored? Because when we lose power in a hurricane, it's often for you know five days in some places. Yeah, and so we use that capital account to secure a refrigerated truck, and it's not yet delivered, but it's happening and it's not just going to sit idle until an emergency it's going to actually be used by our mobile food market which does uh, some great work on providing fresh local food to food deserts um, in hrm and when it needs to be mobilized for an emergency then emergency management will take control of that truck and will take it to where it needs to go to try and preserve the food as just one example Um, Mm -hmm. we've also um been intentional on money that we're spending in some buildings work. So in different community centers. Uh, so kind of our first major retrofit to net zero, um, to net zero emissions for a building with a large solar installation is at the Dartmouth North Community Center. Um, and so we're trying to really make sure we don't have those past kind of trends of money going to particular places and not other places. We're trying to start to really balance everything out. Um, But we don't have like a formal framework or decision-making tree or anything like that because we're just starting and we're just trying. So there's still a lot of work we can do on that, but um, that's our approach so far. Yeah. And like, this is the thing, right? Is, is like having these material examples that you can point to. This is like so important. Um, I was just reading um, Climate Access and the Climate Narratives Initiative study that shows climate communicators need to provide different audiences with these tangible, specific examples to climate solutions to counter, as they say, a growing sense that humanity is helpless in the face of the climate crisis. Um, and this is another thing that Community Engagement Report acknowledges from Halifax, like that many people in your public engagement were supportive of having a plan, happy the work was being done, and felt it was an urgent issue, while others felt the plan was too late and the time frame was too far. But the, you know, the Climate Access Report suggests that climate communication in Canada faces, the way they put it, is faces severe headwinds. And one of those headwinds is the the growing segment of the population that feels it's like too late mm. with most doubting that quote proposed solutions will be very effective or fairly implemented in council. You know, when the budget was adopted, there was a lot of talk about communicating it to the average person um, and, and trying to speak to what that average person, this kind of hypothetical figure is, is feeling. And I think one key way that they uh, uh, that this report suggests you battle the growing climate defeatism, which is so deadly and dangerous, mm. is by making sure that we as climate communicators choose our examples carefully. Like they say, tangible examples have the added benefit of sticking in the mind much longer than broad statistics because they give people a mental quote unquote hook um, uh, or picture of what's possible. And this is something I see you doing really consistently. 
And it's like a, it's like a communicational risk in some ways, like trying to boil things down to like high impact core areas. Um, and, you know, having a stepped plan, which is what Halifax is kind of adopting. And so I guess I wondered if you could speak to just the practicality of that sort of approach, um, you know, moving on specific initiatives, for example, rather than all 46 that the plan outlines and this, you know, specific importance of engendering a palpable sense that a just transition, a healthier future on this Earth Day 2022 is not just imaginable, but possible. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> there might have been a couple questions in there, and I think I got off thinking about something. <laughs> no worries. Whatever you want to do with it, feel free. Um, I think that, yeah, so our consultant said, you know, here here are the 46 actions that the mod, like, so the, the great thing about the plan on the kind of science evidence tech side is that it's science-based targets. We actually did a full spatial and temporal model of energy and emissions from a baseline of 2016 <clears throat> through to 2050 for the Halifax Regional Municipality. And there's like a rainbow wedge diagram that shows all the different buckets of actions that you would need to take to get close to zero by 2050. There's that like little bucket at the end, which is why we say net zero by 2050. Um, and it showed kind of the biggest areas of opportunity and it showed a very steep curve um, in the short term kind of to 2030 uh, very clearly. It's a very impactful image at, if it's explained properly. And um you know, knowing what we knew when we had to take the plan, there was risk in even getting the plan to council because it was such early days in COVID that municipalities were really uncertain about their financial future. Um, and so we we kind of made the point that we should put the plan through regardless because we needed to, because we still needed to act on it. We still wanted council's kind of endorsement of it and of our focus areas, but we didn't ask for any money or any staff when we put that forward. We said we would come back and ask at a later date once we kind of sorted ourselves out with COVID. Um, so what we did in that report was say, based on the role of the city, here are the seven big areas of focus that we think we can be the most impactful right now that don't that do need resources but that we can at least start until we get those resources and those seven big focus areas actually encompass a lot of the 46 actions not every single one but a lot mm -hmm. um and we got their kind of stamp of approval on focusing on those just because we knew we couldn't do absolutely everything. The other thing is the 46 actions don't all start at the exact same time in the plan. The majority of them were immediately or they'd already started and they were continuing. But there were a few that we could wait till like between 2022 and 24 or 2024 and 26. So not a long time, but a little bit of breathing room on a couple of them. Mm. Um, and in terms of... <clears throat> hope and action and trying to kind of rally. I think you're right. Uh, statistics don't stick in a lot of people's minds. They're not shiny. There's no emotional connection or it's hard to have an emotional connection to a statistic. I think it's the stories. I think it's the images, um, especially local ones that we've experienced from hurricanes and things like that here in Nova Scotia. And I think it's those tangible examples. Um, I've also been feeling 
like there's a huge upswing of momentum. I've been in the environmental sector forever and I've been with the city for over 12 years now. And I started as the first climate change uh, staff person in December of 2009. And it was really exciting because there was one manager, one person who did water, and they had created two new positions to do climate related work and some other sustainability work. And that was the full team. Hmm. And that was actually an environmental high. The environment kind of goes in waves hmm. and it's really largely based on the economy and the, the political kind of landscape, right? Mm-hmm. And and then we took a big nosedive and you, I've been riding these waves for a long time. But lately, in the last couple of years, there's been huge momentum growing and and people are coming out like from unusual places. And I'm having conversations with people that I never would have dreamed I'd be able to have conversations with. And it's because we are actually like the sea change is happening. And people like to get behind something that's exciting, that they think is actually maybe going to do some good. And for me, that is like the single best indicator. And I'm so excited because I feel like the messages are getting out and people are are starting to mobilize. And now it's about just having the capacity to support all of those people starting to show interest um, and wanting to take action so that they can do their part. Yeah, no, um, I agree. And, and I feel that same kind of energy um, and momentum. That would be a lovely place to leave things. <laughs> but I do, I do want to, I guess, sort of, um, because I still worry. What I worry about is the, the lack of a, a, a sense of moral clarity or responsibility from the news media in particular, like Mm. despite having overwhelming support from council, the adoption of the the climate action plan has received some like pretty misleading coverage in the news media by my reading. Like, you know, Saltwire had this sub headline that reads, now is not the time to hit residents with even more costs, argue some councillors. CBC's article on the approval of the capital budget has a similar subheadline, which reads, councillor calls 4.6% property tax increase tone deaf. I was really struck by that because it's so clearly framing the document, which Mayor Mike Savage hailed as historic and a testament to what council collectively believes in. Like it's so clearly framing it as kind of negative as a hit against residents in this time of like inflation and economic crisis. And Mm -hmm. it just, it speaks to a certain kind of like lack of vision uh, within the media in particular, or some kind of, I don't know what sensationalism where, you know, it, it even now um, I think foments not a climate denialism, but a climate defeatism by, by like foregrounding, the kind of crude economics of it. Mm -hmm. And so like, I think it's just clear that the battle for attention and for urgent action has, you know, you're right, uh, achieved a level of momentum uh, in terms of like collective action, but it still reached a kind of inflection point in terms of the, the battle for like mind share as it were. And, and I guess like, do you think that that, that struggle for the media to properly reinforce the vision um, is about just a, that crude focus on the need now to like finance actual I- initiatives? And how do you go about communicating the long-term future-oriented inspiration of Halifax against these like immediate fears? That's a really good question. 
scared to answer it. Um, yeah, I've I've been upset by some some of the coverage for sure over the years of mm. climate generally and of our climate plan. I've even gone so far as to work with our corporate communications team to reach out and actually let some journalists know how false falsely they portrayed certain things or that like factually incorrect information, which does damage and you can't really reverse it. You know, once it's read, it's read. Um, you know, they can issue corrections, whatever, in some circumstances they choose not to. Um, and there are some, some journalists out there that are actually really trying and doing a really good job. And then there are a lot that aren't. And, yeah. you know, I know that uh, everybody has bias and um, not all media organizations are independent or are created equally. Um, I have seen some things that are promising, like whole series on climate focused on communities across Nova Scotia, for example, um, you know, intentional, like we are going to do, a, we are going to focus on covering climate now because it's a serious issue for Canadians. And, and so they, it's kind of like more coverage uh, across the country on climate and that's promising. Mm -hmm. But <laughs> I think it takes a lot to change the way humans, humans are, right? And what we, what we always react to, everybody hates tax, everybody hates cost increases. COVID has made everybody extra sensitive for very good reason on a lot of things. And those little bite-sized quotes from the, the very few uh, naysayers at council are the things that, you know, probably are considered to be good headlines. So um, I wish that those were not the headlines. I wish that there were, was better balance in some of it. Yeah. But um, at the end of the day, at least um, our council was hearing from not just <laughs> people like that, right? For sure. Um, and, you know, it, it's neither, you know, it, I think it, it does damage, as you say, but it's not the whole, it's not the whole picture. And the whole picture, you know, federally, you know, it, it's, it's maybe it has some issues, but this, this new federal 2030 climate plan, um, it takes seriously the fact that, you know, uh, emissions in the oil and gas and transportation sectors have increased by 20% and 16% since, uh, you know, respectively since 2005, there's, you know, all kinds of momentum in terms of the money being devoted to things like zero emission vehicles and infrastructure, you know, $180 million indigenous leadership fund, $850 million, uh, you know, fund for renewable electricity development, you know, $780 million for conserving, restoring and supporting carbon storage in the country's wetlands, peatlands and, and grasslands. Like there's, there's all kinds of stuff happening and so I think that needs to be part of the narrative as well. And um, I just think, you know, Halifax is is uh, so powerful in terms of, you know, adding to that narrative, like the way that, for example, the plan talks about this principle of innovation, which is not just technological, uh, but social, you know, talking about how it, quote, requires a willingness to take risks, to fail and to learn, Um so I see that articulated beautifully in the plan. And I wonder, you know, just just finally, if you see this in the federal plan as well, uh, if you have any comments at all on this major climate plan from the federal government, mm. and maybe, you know, some of the things that you feel are, are like missing in relationship to innovation specifically, or, or yeah, any comments on that? Yeah, I've read um, kind of the the highlights of the new federal emissions reduction plan, because that's part of what we're going to talk about in the dialogue this afternoon. Mm -hmm. I haven't read the full thing. Um, and I have been kind of hearing a lot of reactions to it. Um, I think it's, 
I think it's really great. It's it's focused on the mitigation side, right? It's sure. the emissions reduction piece only, so it's not the full the full kind of meal deal like Halifax is, but that and that's totally okay. They have other adaptation uh, work happening as well. Um, I think that a lot of the investments are are really strong. I, we need them to uh, now really figure out the policies to enable all of the lofty goals that are in that reduction plan um, and to really move the money successfully. So it's kind of going to come down to the details and how quickly the federal government can move. And that's a lot about a lot of what we talk about is there's such urgency, but we're so slow. We're so slow at moving money, um, at creating legislative change, new policy. Um, and there's good reasons for that, right? Like we were responsible to our our residents and, you know, we, we have financial responsibilities, legal, all these different considerations. Um, but that's what leads to what everyone likes to call red tape. Mm-hmm. And so we're trying to figure out how to move more quickly by accepting some calculated risk and innovating and prototyping. Uh, so start with like an idea. And if it sticks, see if you can grow it, see if you can scale it, see if you can do it somewhere else. Can we get to another ton of emissions per week or, you know, whatever it is mm-hmm. <clears throat> to try and really work more quickly. And if at the local gov- government we can't do that, then I don't have a lot of confidence that the provincial and federal can because they're that much larger. Like the larger you are, it's it, the harder it is to really uh, make a change within your systems and processes and the way you do things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and just just one thing to mention on the Halifax plan, um, I think for us, we've been spending a lot of time talking about it as an investment and getting the finance community to talk about not just the, you know, the in-your-face today costs, but the the life cycle costs. And that's a that's not something that, I think our psyches are very good at either. Uh, we There's a lot of instant gratification that people want. Uh, we're not all great savers mm-hmm. um, for our retirements, you know, that type of thing. We're not really great at planning very far out. And, you know, saying 2050, we actually took the 2050 out of the plan name of Halifax 2050 because um, people were like, oh, that's really far away. And we were feeling like it wasn't it wasn't right um, because we really want the focus to be on the immediate the immediate action that's required to get us to that place we need to be by 2050. So we talk about the the social opportunities and the economic opportunities of doing this climate plan because there's so many positive spin-offs that are not just in dealing with the environment. It's a lot about social justice. It's a lot about, um, you know, building vibrant, more healthy communities where, where just more people are happier and thriving. Um, I'm not sure that that type of thing is encapsulated in the federal emissions reduction plan. And I'm not sure that it could be right. You know, like they're looking at the whole country and the big moves that they need to make. And they're kind of playing their role in it and then the provinces have their specific roles and then the cities can really have these <clears throat> these different roles and they all need to play together uh, and that's what we're trying to go for is really getting these three levels of government really working together on climate yeah no it's incredible and you know i i can't tell you how much i appreciate just like your it sounds like a lifelong commitment um to it you know just, just the work you're doing with the environment and climate change team now it's it's so encouraging um and uh you know happy earth day and thanks so much for for talking to me happy earth day to you too scott thank you